Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, there's a promising report from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality on the incidence of hospital-acquired conditions which kill roughly 200,000 people per year, according to some estimates. From 2014 to 2016, reported incidents of hospital-acquired conditions dropped about 8%, saving roughly $3 billion in medical costs and thousands of lives as well. Since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, hospital reimbursements have been increasingly reliant upon outcomes, including reduced hospital errors, and this can have a direct impact on a hospital's bottom line. Hopefully, these incentives are working to really start to address this kind of terrible reality in healthcare. The ACA has provisions called the Hospital Acquired Condition Reduction Program, which allow the Department of Health and Human Services to withhold reimbursement to hospitals who show poor control of hospital acquired conditions, things like infections, falls, and adverse drug events that lead to patient deaths. The report found that in 2016 alone, there were roughly 2.7 million hospital-acquired conditions reported, but that's 350,000 fewer events than were reported in 2014. The report really illustrates how important it is to harvest these vital data sets if we're going to be able to truly improve the healthcare system and really measure whether what we're doing is working or not. And that brings us to our guest today. Dr. Rasu Shrezda is Chief Innovation Officer at UPMC Health and Executive Vice President for the University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center Enterprises. He's also a national thought leader on health innovation, serving as chairman of the Innovation Committee at HIMSS and co-chair of Health Data Palooza, which brings together government and health industry entrepreneurs to collaborate on advancing health IT. Lori Robertson also stops by the managing editor of factcheck.org, looking at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. And don't forget to leave us a review. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate it. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Razu Shrezda in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. When it comes to prevention, Americans are laggards. According to a recent report published in the journal Health Affairs, only 8% of American adults 35 and older, fewer than 1 in 10, receive all their recommended annual preventive screenings and primary care interventions. And some 5% of the population receive none at all. The most commonly conducted test is blood pressure screening, but 87% of all Americans. And the least performed preventive measure was administering the shingles vaccine, proved to be very effective in preventing shingles in older adults, which can be painful and debilitating. Researchers analyzed the screening data of 15 preventive measures compiled by the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research. Things like screening for breast, colon, cervical, and prostate cancers, and screening for tobacco and alcohol use, as well as depression, and getting the recommended vaccinations. They found that most avoided many of these common screenings due to lack of insurance or lack of access to a primary care provider. Men were three times more likely to go without any preventive screenings at all. 
CRISPR gene editing technology could be a game changer in battling disease, but two studies recently published in Nature Medicine found that while edited genes could fix the condition they were targeting, the edited genes could later trigger or fuel cancer cell growth down the line. While some see this revelation as cause for serious concern, others see the risk as relatively low based on current information. More and more healthcare executives are sounding bullish on adoption of artificial intelligence tools in their companies, but a majority of them admit to being ill-prepared for how to monitor such technology. According to this year's Accenture Digital Health Technology Vision 2018 report, more than three-fourths of the 100 health executives said they expect to invest in smart sensors and other health IT advances this year, and more than 50 percent plan to invest in some sort of AI technology. However, About 80% felt they were not properly equipped to face liability related to AI and their patient base. A large majority, 91%, felt that blockchain would become an essential tool moving forward. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Rasu Shrezda, Chief Innovation Officer of the University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center, UPMC, and Executive Vice President of UPMC Enterprises. Dr. Shrezda is Chairman of the HIMSS Innovation Committee and is Co-Chair of the Academy Health's Health Data Palooza, a consortium of government and private sector health industry leaders committed to leveraging technology to advance healthcare. He was named the Executive of the Year by Healthcare Dive and was named Top Healthcare Innovator by Information Week. Dr. Shrezda received his medical degree from CCS University in India, his fellowship in informatics at the University of London, and his MBA from the University of Southern California. Dr. Shrezda, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. UPMC is a $16 billion a year integrated payer provider health system, and it delivers care to three and a half million people in over 30 hospitals and employs uh, 80,000 people. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big footprint. And uh, you've stated that your mission is to reinvent the future of healthcare. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners more about the culture of innovation at UPMC. Yeah, I truly believe that this adage that says um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting when you're part of a team that really drives innovation forward and has the capability of leveraging an asset as powerful as UPMC, you get to be able to really cultivate that culture of innovation at the very grassroots levels, but also it's both bottom-up as well as a top-down approach. What we're trying to do at UPMC and at UPMC Enterprises is to really capitalize on this large organization. We're the largest employer in the state of Pennsylvania with 80,000 employees. We're also a large payer organization with over 3.4 million lives that are being covered. Um, And we're trying to capitalize on that. It's really important for us to not just throw darts behind these buzzwords, but really to figure out what, what are some of the core unmet needs that we have in an organization as large as UPMC that in many ways is also representative of the rest of the health system Mm -hmm. and healthcare as we know it more broadly, of the challenges around integrating data and liberating data Mm -hmm. and some of the challenges that we know around accessing data and leveraging data to really get into insights that'll make a difference in the lives of these patients. But the root of all of that really is to get that culture Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're able to 
truly understand uh, not just the specifics of the what, but also the why. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's what we're really trying to uh, do here at UPMC. Well, Dr. Shrezda, you and your team have figured out this issue around culture, acknowledging there can be something of a culture clash between medical professionals who are so well-trained in adhering to evidence-based practices and the health industry entrepreneurs that maybe are seeing a vision of what might work. You've been engaging frontline clinicians in your design work, which is so critical. Can you talk a little bit about the design thinking approach that you use at UPMC, what I know you've called the living lab for innovation? And if you have an example or two of innovations that have come through this process, I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing about them. Yeah, I really believe that in healthcare, it's important for us to take a step back from just this busyness that we're in. You know, we're, we're so busy trying to, quote unquote, fix healthcare. And I think it's important for us to just acknowledge the fact that, hey, look, there's this culture clash that's happening really across the board in healthcare. And it's, it's something that I think we really need to acknowledge first and to actually address that challenge. So on one end of that culture clash are you know, traditionalists and, and clinicians and, and researchers and scientists. And, and you know, I'm a clinician by background, and we were trained to go with the tried and tested and evidence-based guidelines and best practices and clinical protocols. And that's actually a really good thing because that's how medicine has grown to be what it is today, based on strong scientific and academic rigor. The other end of that clash, however, are entrepreneurs and innovators and and technologists even. And we're coming in and saying, hey, here's this brand new way of doing things. Trust us, it'll work. And bam, the clash really happens at that point. And what we've been doing in healthcare is we go out and have a you know, request for proposal. We purchase a software solution. We have a go-live event. And that's maybe for perhaps the first time that you know physician gets to interact with that piece of software. And that's just wrong on so many different levels. And what we're trying to do is really to turn that around on its head and saying, yep, there's this culture clash that's happening. And the way to really navigate that is to make sure that the clinicians, the end users, the patients are at the very beginning, not at the very end, but really at the very beginning of that process. And and hence the embrace of this methodology around design thinking, where we start first with empathy. We're able to really have these design thinking exercises and talk about what they want built, but really about what their pain points really are. And that's when you start really getting into the very crux of those challenges that we're facing on a day-in, day-out basis. And when you then sit down and go through this iterative process of designing and building solutions and coming up with prototypes and rapid cycles, um, you know, this method of fail fast that we talk so fondly about then becomes real. And you're able to scale those successes and, and learn from those failures and really get to a point where you can truly capitalize on those assets that you have, those clinicians, those patients, and really come together as a team around this process. So that is how we're really pushing for some of our innovations forward. So whether it's in areas of mental health whether it's in areas of you know, cancer care, many, many specific examples of how we're really trying to capitalize on that design thinking process, leveraging those clinicians and those patients as partners, not just building these solutions, but helping grow these solutions into really successful products and, 
and, and, and companies even. Mm. Dr. Shrestha, as you were talking about that paradigm, we just had Dr. Eric Topol on our show, a cardiologist, uh, geneticist, but also somebody who really gets it about being engaged with these transformations with the population, obviously engaged in the All of Us initiative. But he's talking to us about this pivotal moment. We are the opportunity to reboot healthcare towards a more true personalized medicine looking in the AI area of machine learning, genomics, and and others. And you also say that we're at an important inflection point that this is a new wave of innovation. It's not necessarily about creating new gadgets or things, but it's often more about rethinking the existing health paradigm. And you really just talked about that very nicely, I think. How ready do you think the country is for this uh, new level of engagement? Well, you know, you mentioned Eric Topol, and he is such a brilliant individual and is a visionary on, on many fronts. We had an exercise that we did that culminated in a tweet chat, as well as a really interesting webinar and a number of other pieces that are coming out of what we're calling the rise of genomics, hashtag rise of genomics. Really, we talked about a lot of things that are coming together to basically facilitate innovations such as the rise of genomics where you see consumers really leaning in and embracing the likes of genomic testing type capabilities that are now directly accessible to patients and consumers that physicians are now really using to help them in making really life-changing decisions but also to help them have meaningful conversations with their patients and others. And so, you know, that's just one example. And, you know, you talked about the, the infliction point, and we really are at an infliction point in the industry. And I think it is ours to lose, whether you're a small entrepreneurial startup or you're a larger health system like us at UPMC or you're an outsider like uh, Amazon and others that are sort of looking to come into healthcare and quote-unquote disrupt healthcare. We've got three massive dynamic tsunamis almost hitting us. One sort of, you know, this wave of digitization, you know, we're more digital today than we've ever been in the past, more so even in the last decade with meaningful use and and other sort of initiatives that have really pushed us forward in the embrace of digital, and that's a good thing. The second is this move from volume to value, and there's this movement from talk to action. And the third really is technology whose time has come, and capabilities such as genomics and you know, machine learning and AI that have really come to a level of maturity and, and the right price point today that really allows for us to embrace these capabilities and these three dynamics and, and take it to the next level. So I do think the time is right. It's more right today than it's ever been in the past. You know, we're, we're in 2018 today, and I remember, you know, a decade or more ago, right. we used to talk about, you know, 2020, right. you know, that's the right. future. Well, the future is here, yep. and it's time for us to really capitalize on all of this. Well, that's great, Dr. Shrezda. You know, one thing I really appreciate about uh, some of your uh, writing and comments is that you caution against overusing buzzwords and catchphrases, which is kind of endemic in healthcare a lot of the time. And you've used uh, patient-centered care as an example of a phrase that, of course, we all believe that that's what we're doing. It certainly sounds wonderful, but then we went and created technology around the patient-provider interchange that maybe actually really interfered with care that patients would experience as truly centered with them at the center of it. But I know that you're very committed to this principle that the patient has to be at the center of any design enterprise. Tell us about that process at UPMC Enterprises. And again, if you have some examples of how 
patients have really informed the projects that you're undertaking there with your innovation team? So I think it's really important for us as an industry really to just stop it. Stop with paying <laughs> lip service to, you know, hey, let's have a patient-centered approach to care. And, and I, I do think clinicians believe this in their core that what they're doing is practicing patient-centered care, and they are. The problem is that the solutions that we've created for them, the system that we've built, really doesn't cater to a true patient-centered approach. And it's, it's very, you know, systemic in the way that, you know, we've created these solutions, you know, focused on billing and documentation, you know, getting a lot of these transactional components done, getting this volume throughput through your organization. And we have an opportunity today to really reinvent how we're looking at patient-centered care. And one approach that we're taking at UPMC is to really engage these end users. I mentioned the process of design thinking earlier, but engage them in the very design of these solutions, but re-architect the specifics of even the workflow and, and the incentives around these patients that really uh, need to be part of the journey. It is for them and with them that we're building these solutions, not just at them. So one example of this is you know, lots of challenges in mental health. You know, there are two big challenges that we see. It. One is stigma and the other is access to expert mental health resources. And we have an opportunity to redesign of these solutions. And the way that we did this was to really um, co-create a set of solutions with uh, a company called Lantern Health that we invested into. And we're building the, these set of solutions that really puts all of these capabilities directly in the hands of consumers through mobile devices and you know coaching capabilities again directly accessible to them and it's amazing how innovations like those are really transforming the way that patients are now being empowered to really lean in and be part of a broader care team that includes themselves and and that's just one example of how we need to really rethink this mm-hmm. paradigm and truly engage patients in the redesign of these solutions that we're building. We're speaking today with Dr. Rasu Shrestha, Chief Innovation Officer of the University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center and Executive Vice President of UPMC Enterprises, the Entrepreneurial Division of UPMC. Dr. Shrestha is co-chair of the Academy Health's Health Data Palooza. Uh, Rasu, we've had many of the Data Palooza influencers on the show, Lisa Simpson from the Academy Health, Anish Chopra, and others. Tell us what's up with uh, the Data Palooza gathering this last year. What what was all the buzz about? So as co-chair of Data Palooza, I was able to really have an opportunity to be in the driver's seat with other leaders in, as we enter into 2020. It's different today than when Health Data Palooza first came into right. existence now nine years ago. You know, our country is in a different trajectory altogether. You know, a lot of the data has been liberated, but at the same time, a lot more yet needs to be done mm-hmm. with the data. It's not just about having access to the data, but actually making sure that we're able to see multiple different sectors and segments come together to really build the solutions that we need. Um, and, and Health Data Palooza was that um, was that uh, platform where you saw public sector come together with private sector, come together with experts around policy, 
uh, with investors, with folks from the patient community and provider community really come together and say, all right, how do we really make it work? So tremendous conversations, and there's a lot more yet that we're planning mm-hmm. for going into uh, 2019 to capitalize on this big wave that we're seeing around all these different entities coming together. Well, we'll do an advanced shout-out, happy 10th anniversary. Uh, <laughs> hard <laughs> hard to yeah. believe. So, you know, you, you referenced this new trend of non-traditional healthcare industry entities coming into this space. Google has its Verily Sidewalk Labs researching ways to improve population health. We see companies like Aetna and CVS forming mergers to actually meet patients where they live. We have the new ABC venture with Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, Morgan Chase, promising to disrupt healthcare and bring costs down. So in this climate of accelerated innovation, but also promised disruption from multiple sectors, what has you most concerned or perhaps most excited about where this is going to take the healthcare industry in the United States? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about where things are right now in these, you know, quote unquote, outsiders like, um, you know, Google and and, uh, Amazon and others really trying to get into healthcare and uh, solve for some of the biggest challenges of healthcare. You also got, you know, more um, of the insiders or perhaps non-traditional insiders like CVS and Aetna and others saying, All all right, you know, there is there's a way that we can actually solve for some of the biggest challenges. And in many ways, that's what we've been trying to do at UPMC. And we've been trying to take a very non-traditional Silicon Valley-esque approach, call it that, um, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in the uh, you know, very heart of a very traditional healthcare organization where you know, one of the largest academic medical training programs in the country with a lot of science and academia and rigor behind a lot of the, the entrepreneurial business bets that we make and these term sheets that we pull together and these companies that we create. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to do is to say, hey, look, how do we take a very non-traditional approach to this? And we do this a lot of times with the right partners as well. So it's really encouraging to see uh, across the industry, including from outside of healthcare that are coming in, because look, I do think it's about time that we do this. We're, we're a $3.5 trillion industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, costs continue to accelerate and access to care is not where it needs to be. So we, in many ways, are ourselves challenging the status quo and ourselves taking very non-traditional approaches. So I'm excited. The only concern that I would throw out at this stage really is that it needs to be done with a level of purpose and not just with a frenzy to make a splash in the media or make a change happen. It needs to be thought through that really is backed by uh, in a strong academic and scientific rigor, but is also backed with a mission in mind to really make massive changes in the way that our healthcare industry's trajectory is actually moving. You know, how do we think about sort of newer business models that need to exist? How do we think about how we incentivize not just the physician communities, but also the patient and the consumers out there to really, uh, you know, turn the notion of healthcare on its head and move it from where it's been today, which is really about sick care, to where it needs to be, which is really about wellness 
and thriving and staying out of hospitals and mm-hmm. sort of disrupting the current paradigm. So excited, but at the same time, concerned that we don't do this in a frenzied manner with a level of urgency that it calls for, but also with a strong backing of scientific rigor. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rasu Shrestha, Chief Innovation Officer of the University of Pittsburgh's Medical Center and the Executive Vice President of UPMC's Enterprises. You can learn more about their work by going to enterprises.upmc.com or you can follow him on Twitter at R-A-S-U S-H-R-E-S-T-H-A also at hashtag UPM Innovates. Rasu, thank you so much for the exciting work that you're doing. You're such a bright light in the healthcare environment and we appreciate you joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me here. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Donald Trump implied that his administration's funding to fight the opioid epidemic had caused the numbers to come way down. But the most recent data we have on opioid-related deaths, which are still rising, and prescriptions for opioids, which have been declining in recent years, predate the funding the president touted. During a campaign rally in Nashville, the president said, quote, we got $6 billion for opioids, adding, quote, and the numbers are way down. The $6 billion was for fiscal 2018 and 2019. At the end of March, Congress appropriated $3.6 billion of that for fiscal 2018, which ends September 30th. When we asked the White House about Trump's claim, it referred us to figures primarily on opioid prescriptions. The latest figures, however, only encompass 2017, Trump's first year in office, and before the funding the president cited was even appropriated. Overall, dispensed prescriptions for opioids have been declining in recent years. Total deaths from opioid overdoses, which numbered more than 42,000 people in 2016, have continued to increase. The latest figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that the number of dispensed prescriptions peaked in 2012 and then began to decline. The rate of 18.3 prescriptions per 100 people in 2012 was down to 66.5 per 100 people in 2016. Figures, including 2017, come from a report by IQVIA Institute for Human Data Science. That report found that the volume of opioid prescriptions has been declining since 2011. One factor that report cited was more states adopting laws on restricting prescriptions, such as the volume or number of days opioids can be prescribed to new patients. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When it comes to walking the walk, 
Chester County, Pennsylvania, is on it. To celebrate National Public Health Week, county health officials decided to issue a challenge to members of their community to log a collective billion steps last year. started with a National Association of County Officials conference in which they were announcing a national competition to improve health outcomes in cities and counties. So we applied for that while we were also trying to introduce more physical activity into our health department initiatives. Jean Kasner, director of the Chester County Health Department, says they launched the program, WalkWorks Chess Co., creating a website for county residents to log their daily steps, to join walking groups, issue challenges, and get entire families and neighborhoods involved with this simple goal. Walk for Better Population Health. A model for getting individuals up and walking that takes multiple approaches and hopefully starts to inspire that next generation to be walking uh, with something simple. Communities, schools, companies all engaged in walking challenges and it led to far more people participating throughout the county. So we actually have a website where people can go and check how many steps and how many walkers and look at competitions, that's really what starts to spur it. And then having a couple trusted organizations participate in a walk and putting a little visibility, getting the newspaper out there to write a little piece on it, it doesn't have to be countywide, and that's the beauty of walking. In just six months, some 3,000 participants were able to log over a billion steps, having reached their goal far more easily than they originally thought. Kasner says since it's a two-year program, they actually had to increase their goals to keep people walking. So last year, we accumulated about $1.7 billion. Our goal was $1 billion, so we exceeded that. And we reached about 2,800 walkers. This year's goal is to walk a cumulative of 5 billion steps. We took a look at the data and said, we have a lot of steps. We don't have enough people. So in a county of 515,000-plus residents, so we pushed it up to uh, 5,000. Their program earned early praise from the Aetna Foundation, and they're now in the running for clinching the national competition. A community-wide effort leveraging the power of public and government entities to engage the community in a collective health and wellness program, creating a user-friendly website for participants to engage with one another, making it fun, yielding an increase in healthy exercise across the population. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.